Hello, and welcome to the Commander Theory Podcast. I'm Nick Beatman, and I'm here with my friend, Zach Mack. Hello, theorists. So today we're going to be continuing our series of retrospectives with one of my favorite sets, Tempest. It was released on October 14th, 1997, and it was really innovative, both in how it portrayed its story uh, and what kind of products it offered. And of course, there are a ton of Commander staples in Tempest, uh, so I really want to get into those. But before we jump in, I want to briefly talk about our Patreon. If you head on over to patreon.com slash commander theory, you can support the show and get sweet benefits for as little as $1 a month. If you aren't ready to be a patron yet, you can help us out by rating or reviewing us wherever you get your podcasts. All right, uh, let's let's start off with a couple interesting facts, a couple interesting innovations uh, that that were implemented with Tempest. So Tempest was the first set with pre-constructed theme decks. So prior to the release of Tempest, uh, if you were getting into magic, you kind of had to figure out deck building on your own for the most part. Um, But Tempest sort of offered this on-ramp for new players where they could start with one of these pre-constructed decks, like learn the themes of the set that way, and then maybe swap in new cards as they expanded their collection. It was just made it a lot easier to get into magic to, to get a functional deck. Um, another interesting innovation from Tempest, uh, Tempest was the first set to feature a special pre-release card. Uh, it, it's, mm, I would say it hasn't stood the test of time in terms of its uh, <laughs> design. Um, it's a dirt cowl worm, so four and a green for a three, four worm. Whenever an opponent plays a land, you put a plus one, plus one counter on it. But yeah. uh, like it's interesting that they're like experimenting with the promo space. Uh, they're finding new ways to bring people out to pre-releases. Um, really, they're they're clearly doing a lot of new things with this set. And and speaking of new things, uh, let's let's talk about the story of Tempest. So, uh, the Tempest is like the I guess like one of the first major story beats of the Weatherlight Saga. The Weatherlight Saga uh, kicked off with Weatherlight at the end of Mirage Block. But Tempest was really where the the story gets underway. Like the in Weatherlight, it's sort of just like a a getting the band back together type of of thing going on in the storyline. Gerard or Sisse gets abducted. Gerard is going around and trying to pull together the old crew. And Tempest is the place that the Weatherlight goes to in its quest to uh, rescue Sisse. So this saga began because Mark Rosewater and editor Michael G. Ryan uh, wanted to tell an overarching story. Like previously, the, the stories in Magic were either limited to a single set or maybe across, across a few sets like of course, Mirage and Visions were tied together in their storyline. Ice Age and Alliances were tied together in their storyline. But uh, they, they wanted to, to have a story that kept going over multiple years, that had a recurring cast of characters that you could get to know really well. Um, and they also wanted to change how the story was communicated to the players. So they were really meticulous in storyboarding the, the beats of Tempest's story. And these story beats were faithfully represented in the art and flavor text of the cards. So 
these were, were kind of the, the precursors of modern story spotlight cards. And there were 59 of them in the set. So <laughs> you could not possibly miss it. Uh, if you even just buying a couple packs of this set, you would see like, oh, here is what's going on at given points in the story. And you could arrange them, uh, you know, from beginning to end. Unfortunately, they weren't numbered the way modern story spotlight cards. But it was possible if you knew the order uh, to tell the entire story uh, just by putting these cards side by side. They were, it was really innovative way to make sure that the players couldn't possibly miss what was going on with the story. Um, and then uh, another way that they were like communicating the story to players is in these pre-constructed decks that they introduced with Tempest, they each contained a booklet which had like a couple of pages about like, oh, here's the mechanics of the set. Um, but like they dedicated almost 50 pages to profiling Tempest's main characters and summarizing its story. So both in what they're putting on the cards and what they're putting in these supplemental products, you cannot possibly miss what's going on in the story, which is very, very different from what was happening, you know, just a year ago in Mirage and Visions. Like, you know, if you read every single flavor text in Mirage and Visions, you could kind of get like, okay, Karavek is a bad guy and Mangara has been imprisoned. And that's mostly what you understand. You don't get a whole lot of what's going on. Like you, you could miss the fact that like Teferi came back and, and kind of solved the problem at the end of Visions. There's a, a big evolution in terms of how the story is being told and also a big evolution in terms of like the characterization. So other than like Kervek being a jerk, I couldn't really tell you a lot of like details about the personalities behind the Mirage storyline. And that's also true for like the Ice Age and Alliances storyline. Um, but they really worked hard to make sure that like familiar archetypes were represented among the crew of the Weatherlight. So you kind of you can get and also like they assigned these characters to different writers to ensure that um, there was like a consistent voice in the flavor text that was being uh, represented on the cards. So you got to know these characters really, really well. And it was made easier by the fact that they were like, you know, Gerard is a rogue. You, you kind of can get it like if you get us, you're going to get a sense like, oh, it's kind of like a Han Solo character. And that makes you easier to it easier to understand him. Um, and, and, you know, similarly, like they, all the, all the characters embody some kind of archetype that, um, you can just understand and relate to and root for a little bit more easily than the kind of blank slates we'd seen prior to that, or like the underdeveloped characters we'd seen prior to that. Um, so a lot, lot going on with the story of Tempest really innovative in that respect. These were like some of the cards that I like saw first, even before I was like really playing like for real. Um, these were the cards that like friends, siblings had, and I would look at and see. Um, and I definitely got the impression that there was a story, <laughs> you know, like, like I would look at cards and be like, oh, there's like, like this angel, or oh, there's this elf guy, and oh, look, there's these cards where they're doing stuff together. like. 
it definitely made it feel like there is something happening. I, I could figure out if I got more of the pieces together and like looked at more cards and stuff like that. So I, I always really liked Tempest for that. Yeah, definitely. It, yeah, it, it really felt like um, uh, Antiquities. Like it, the idea was like you're finding the remnants of this like war and putting the pieces together. It kind of felt like that here too. It was like, okay, like this is this really interesting story, but I have, I don't know the entire thing yet because I've just found this one piece of it. And I think that is actually like one of the strengths of magic being like a game with a story that you tell non-linearly because you're never sure what card is going to be someone's first <laughs> mm-hmm. i think that's pretty cool but all of that aside i guess do you want to get into the mechanics do we want to keep on moving with uh with what the set was actually doing sure sure um so the first mechanic we're going to be talking about is shadow uh this is on 21 cards although there's a couple other cards that reference shadow And essentially, a creature with shadow can block or be blocked only by creatures with shadow. So it's it's kind of like this parallel board state where they can't really interact in combat with your regular creatures and vice versa. Um, But how it kind of played out is there. It's just like really similar to flying. Um, It's just an evasion, like, you know, reach aside. It's just a form of evasion that you're like creatures without the ability can't really deal with. And you have to either use removal or get creatures of your own with this ability. Um, And also they're bad at blocking, but yeah, (laughs) (laughs) but so, I mean, it's interesting that they're experimenting with like other simple combat abilities, but I don't know if shadow really added a ton to this game, especially given that there's like, lying in the set too yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean it they've talked about it a lot since and other designers have talked about it a lot since in set in context it tells like a cool story there's these people and they exist on their own world uh, and then outside of the set you're like oh this is unblockable and i block poorly mm-hmm. and there's there's kind of like no in between because unless you're going to keep the keyword rolling through multiple sets throughout magic's time existing it's it's just gonna be like yeah unblockable most of the time so the flavor is kind of lost on people um at the time it was probably pretty rad at the time it was like oh whoa shadow people crazy mm-hmm. but yeah definitely uh i don't think it added as much to the game as as they're hoping it would yeah yeah uh you want to talk about the next mechanic though yeah, sure. So this one is one people know uh, very well. Uh, this is buyback. So buyback is basically it's on instants and sorceries, and it's an additional cost that you pay for, like basically to have the spell resolve and go back into your hand instead of being placed into the graveyard. Um, so uh, an example would be something like corpse stance. So corpse stance is a black instant. It costs you in a black. It says put the top creature card from your graveyard uh, onto the battlefield. And that is including Graveyard Order. So if you're going to play this card now, you do have to care about Graveyard Order for, for your deck. Um, that creature is uh, gains haste until end of turn. Uh, exile it uh, at the end of your turn. And it has buyback for two, so just two generic. So if you pay five mana, at instant speed, the top creature of your graveyard can just be slapped right down onto the battlefield. 
Um, and if you have a way to sack it before those triggers resolve at the end of the turn, then you can do it again the next turn. Um, it's a pretty cool card. Uh, I've played with it a lot. I think both me and Nick have over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is just one example of like a cool buyback card. We're going to get into more for sure <laughs> in this episode. But um, this mechanic, uh, it I mean, it did a few things. One was like in formats for like Commander Eternal formats. Uh, these are kind of instant staples for various archetypes, and you'll, we'll, like I said, we'll talk about some more later. Um, so, like, if you have a corpse dance, then like your reanimator deck is just going off the rails because every turn or every ten mana, every five mana you have is like a reanimation or something. Um, so that's pretty good if you had like a bounce spell, a burn spell, a destroy artifacts, whatever they might be. Um, you could do it every turn, and that's kind of fun, except for when you're playing limited, and every turn the person's burning out your board, and <laughs> there's repetitive gameplay um, that you can't really do much about unless you have a counter spell. So, buyback's yeah, that, pretty hard to interact with, and that was a problem at the time. Definitely, like, uh, and without a counter spell or hand disruption, you know, of course both of which are very limited in their their colors. Uh, there's just not much you can do about it. So it can be frustrating to play against. Um, also, like, it's, it is a little annoying that, like, even if you're, uh, even if you're, like, just super flooded out and every turn you're top decking a land, like, I mean, it's kind of nice that you will always have something to do with your mana, but it also just means, like, you can never... It, it really reduces um, the effective variance on your gameplay, um, which mm-hmm. is not something to not something to recommend. I think in like especially in a limited environment, um, I think a lot of these cards uh, are less good now than they were when we started playing. Just because like pumping five mana into your corpse stance every turn is more more of a cost than it was say like 10 years ago um there there's just like more efficient uh alternatives you can be spending your mana on these days Mm -hmm. but it's still like a a fantastic mana sink if you've got your you know herborg coffers engine up it's just a great way to make use of your mana every turn reuse some of your your haymaker creatures um and of course there's some decks that can just get by like really all they need to do is reanimate one thing per turn i'm thinking of like uh piru the volatile or (laughs) like child of alara where just playing and sacrificing this one creature over and over is like enough to stabilize you and control the board and and all these other things um so definitely continues to be a very useful tool for some decks i think uh, it's it's a mechanic that's fine in small doses, especially when it's doing things that are sort of narrow in their applications. Not every deck is going to want is going to have like, you know, the sack outlets and the ways to get things in your graveyard for corpse stance to be really good. Um, not every deck is going to want like a sack outlet in your hand, like worthy cause can be. Um, so yeah that those are, i think are more interesting than like say forbid from exodus <laughs> <laughs> where you 
you can just like you know counter a whole bunch of spells as long as you're able to keep drawing cards uh that's i think a lot less fun but yeah <laughs> let's uh let's maybe move on to the next mechanic this is a pretty spicy one and and probably one of the more enduring probably one of the most enduring ones to come out of the set but yeah go ahead, tell us about it absolutely so this is um a mechanic that is a creature type this is slivers um so slivers are basically creatures that say uh well at the time they said all slivers gain blank or all slivers get blank and the idea was it was kind of like the borg from star trek where uh when one of the borg uh assimilates like a new like technology yeah technology or like race into the the hive mind they like kind of all gain that adaptation uh and now like your phasers don't work as well against them because they absorb this new technology that like protects them from it or whatever and so they were it was the designers taking that kind of like thought process and bringing it into magic so um like you'd get things like horned sliver which is a two two for three two and a green uh, and it says slivers gain trample. So now you play your horn sliver and every single sliver on the board gains trample. Um, if you would go through and uh, uh, what else? Muscle sliver is in the set, I think, right? Mm-hmm. So that was uh, slivers. Winged sliver. One. Yeah, winged sliver. Slivers gain flying. Um, what's the hay sliver in this set? There's one for three. It's two and a red. Ooh, I think it might be heart sliver. Yeah, I think it's heart sliver. Yes. Heart sliver. It's a one, one for two. Sorry. I was off there. Uh, so one in a red, uh, slivers gain haste, but at the time it said, uh, all slivers are unaffected by summoning sickness. So, um, all of a sudden every sliver you play after that point has haste and they're coming in fast. So it was a mechanic through all five colors. Um, it, uh, was wildly popular. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was wildly popular at the time. It still is. You probably know one to multiple people who have a sliver deck. They've really tried to support it over the years, giving it multiple legendary creatures. Um, and I'm pretty sure it all started here in Tempest. Pretty mm-hmm. sure this was the first one. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, one of the more enduring things to come out of the set. Um, like a good source of of casual fun five color decks Mm -hmm. so yeah great great innovation there um and also it taught people i I don't know i think it might have taken them a little while to learn the lesson but you know really i think people love slivers because there wasn't a whole lot of tribal stuff going on at the time so to have Mm -hmm. a a creature type where every single one is some sort of tribal effect uh i think that's really what people responded to and you know the fact that they were like i don't think it was necessarily yeah i mean they have a cool design they look cool but it i think it was more the mechanics that really got people excited about it yeah i i think so too i think um it was just i mean i remember the first time i played against the sliver deck when i was um like actually playing the game and i remember like seventh edition had just come out and uh i had made like mono green apes um just for funsies with like cards that i had on hand like ancient silverbacks and and gorilla chieftains and uh, i didn't know at the time but the um the manlands from urza block the what is it village treetop villages and stuff 
which ended up being apes years later, which is pretty funny. Oh, yeah. um, and I remember I sit down and I'm starting to play against my friend's brother who has a sliver deck and it just completely <laughs> destroyed me because it was like every single card in the deck worked together. And that was like mm-hmm. a big wake up call to me as like a player when my little like, I don't know, when I, like 10, 11 year old self or whatever that was. You're just running like cards that are kind of individually pretty decent yeah exactly like a a six five for six that can regenerate really easily is no match for a board full of slivers that all came down and have flying and haste and trample and are like Mm -hmm. plus one plus one or plus one plus oh bigger and it just uh it was like wow (laughs) it was the the first thought was like wow i don't want to play against that deck again and then it was like how can i make a deck like that (laughs) um so very different time in my life as a, mm-hmm. as a magic player. Um, but yeah, definitely, I think something that resonated with people for a lot of reasons. And uh, and I, I think it's just always will. I think something about that gameplay where like every creature on your board is like in it together. Like allies tried to do this um, and just kind of did like a slivers light version of it honestly Mm -hmm. you know like it just didn't quite hit the same note even though there are some people that really like allies and that's totally cool but um yeah slivers just kind of it was the original and i think they just did it the best you know there's Mm -hmm. nothing quite like it um also nothing quite like the next cycle but uh these were not fan favorites (laughs) They, they also didn't work in the rules for a really long time um do you want me to get into the next cycle? <laughs> uh, yes, yeah. So we're moving. We're switching sort of from me- mechanics just to pure cycles. Oh yes, uh, this, yes, yeah. This one's pretty interesting, though. Go ahead and read this example off. Yeah, I loved these as when I was a kid. So these, uh, the first cycle we're going to talk about uh, are lissids. So the lissids were a um, cycle of creatures. Um, and what they did was they had an activated ability that turned them into, uh, auras. So at the time they were turned into enchantment, enchant creatures, uh, that sat on another creature you control. Um, and then they had a cost you could pay to turn them back into a creature if you wanted. So, uh, to give an example of this, I have, uh, enraging licid here for you. So, um, enraging licid is a one, one for two mana um and uh let me get through this paragraph real quick it says oh two mana one and a red so so easy to cast it says red tap enraging licid loses this ability and becomes an aura enchantment with enchant creature attach it to target creature you may pay red to end this effect and enchanted creature has haste um do you want me to read the old wording of this so that people can see like how goofy they were <laughs> yeah yeah go for it so the original if you were to look at an enraging list because it's never been reprinted um right now if you're going to look at that text box it says red tap enraging listed loses this ability and becomes a creature enchantment that reads enchanted creature is unaffected by summoning sickness instead of a creature move enraging listed onto target creature you may pay red to end this effect so if you read it even that old version, like it makes a lot of sense. Like you're like, okay, I know what I'm supposed to do with this, but like rules wise, for a long time, it didn't work. <laughs> they just were like, yeah, just it works, but we don't know how. Well, also, like 
you, you know, I think it is a, a tiny bit confusing in the sense that, um, like, becomes a creature enchantment that reads blank, blank, blah, 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 instead of a creature. Like, if you see creature enchantment, like, that's not, uh, I, I don't know. You could, I think, feel like you could easily read this as like it's an enchantment creature rather than it's yeah. an aura with enchant creature. Um, so I think that could be a little confusing. I definitely like the, the modern wording a lot better. Um, but yeah, interesting, like really interesting design space that they're going for. And, and clearly, like Mark Rosewater, who was on this design team, uh, went on to revisit this type of mechanic with reconfigure in Kamigawa Neon Dynasty. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that version was probably a bit more successful, but like the, the germ was here in Tempest, you know, mm-hmm. 25 years ago. Yeah. And it's funny. So they did another cycle of these in Stronghold. Um, mm-hmm. And then they printed like a, like two random Lissids in uh, Exodus and those ones are the ones that I saw more often because they did kind of goofier things. They're kind of like one of effects. Um, but I, yeah, I definitely remember these. Um, I, I remember, remember mm-hmm. I remember dominating listed that one. Uh, mm-hmm. That's <laughs> that one like this one. Yeah. Yeah. That one's super obnoxious. So that one is um, one blue, blue for a one, one, and then you can pay one blue, blue tap. And basically, it becomes a control magic. So that that's just incredibly like repeatable control magic is a super annoying thing to deal with, yeah. especially given that like the the ending the effect doesn't use the stack. So how are how are they even going to stop you? Really, like a, there's no way a naturalize is going to to stop this thing. Mm-hmm. Just really, really oppressive to to have all your creatures taken one by one <laughs> yeah that one's pretty gnarly um it's funny because most of these i remember just for the art like the art like elicit for magic was basically kind of like a slightly cuter like face sucker mm-hmm. like kind of alien looking bug thing uh and some of them the art like with quickening Lissid, which is in tempest is the white one that gives a creature first strike it's like, okay, this is a symbiotic relationship. This person is like moving faster. And then some of them, like with enraging Lissid, or like uh, in the next set, there's like convulsing Lissid and like corrupting Lissid. You're like, some of them are like burrowing their this? tendrils yeah. into the skin. Like, <laughs> yeah, you're like, is this, is this good? Like, does that guy like this? So I remember that for sure as a kid seeing Lissids and being like, why, why, why do they do that? Um, Trans- that is a cool concept. Yeah, transmogrifying Lissid is like a really interesting one from mm-hmm. a lore perspective because it. Yeah, this is one of the the two in Exodus, and um, it's it's one that turns a creature into an artifact. Mm-hmm. But if you like look at it, you can see like some. It is kind of secreting black oil into this guy. It's latched onto, and you wonder if like is transmogrifying Lissid like a Phyrexian? Is that what's going on here? Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? They never answered this question, but I, yeah. I remember that one too. Cause uh, that was when I actually tried to use a few times back in the day, um, which I won't get into now cause it's a long story, but definitely stared at this art for a long time. The Jim Nelson Lissid on the guy head art. So 
all these interesting um didn't really didn't really come back to them though they kind of i think a combination of limited design space confusing to read um Mm -hmm. not super popular like popular with like a certain crowd but like a a cult following is not enough to repeat it necessarily you know so um and and like you said we got a reconfigure which i think is just a much better version (laughs) of this effect Mm -hmm. so um not not upset about it um do you want to get into the next cycle yes uh so the the next cycle is the medallion cycle these are two cost artifacts uh and they each reduce there's five of them one for each color and they each reduce spells of that chosen color uh or of that respective color that you cast by one mana so for example jet medallion is two mana uh black spells you cast cost one less to cast so these are really powerful. They're they're great for decks that plan to be casting a whole bunch of spells in one turn, like say creature ball decks or spell slinger decks. Um, and a lot of them have, you know, when we get into the the staples, the commander staples in Tempest, you'll we'll be referencing all of them again uh, because they have seen a lot of adoption in this format. Um, but anything you want to say about the the medallions? Um. No, I think uh, it's a great design, I think, is the biggest thing to say about them. Um, and I think it was something that, like, this is back when people still weren't aware that, like, sometimes the fast mana was the problem. So I think the medallions, to a lot of players, just looked like a fun card to put in their deck. And, like, we're surprised by how good they were. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, by, like, how the the velocity of which they could play their game after they played a medallion. I've kind of talked about how um, being able to double spell in a turn, it's a big deal in limited, but it's it's also a bigger deal than people give it credit for in commander because there are so many turns where you can double, triple, like quadruple spell in commander, which I think is one of the reasons people like the format, but it's still a big deal to get to the point when you can do that. And the medallion's very very easily make that the case so um i have always loved them Uh, i think they're really cool they're fun and uh yeah we will talk more about them uh as the episode continues but uh gonna get into the next cycle of uh cards yes go for it yeah so this is one that some of you might be familiar with and uh some of you might still be using it is uh, a cycle of enter the battlefield tapped uh, enemy pain lands. So enemy lands couldn't be as good as the allied ones, you know, couldn't, couldn't make that happen. So what they did was they made pain lands. So pain lands are lands that tap for a mana, uh, just a generic mana, or they tap for a mana of one of two colors and deal a damage to you. Um, but these ones entered tapped. So a little bit slower, um, a lot bit worse. Um, so an example would be salt flats. Salt Flats uh, enters the battlefield tapped, adds a generic, or adds a white or black, and deals a damage to you. So, mana fixing, these were pretty easy to get. They're still pretty easy to get now <laughs> if you were to want to pick some of these up. And like I said, some of you probably, like maybe you're still playing with them. I'm not, not exactly sure, but uh, they still work, you know? <laughs> like, for a while, these were some of the only like enemy fixing lands. I'm pretty sure, like other than the duels, yeah, definitely very restrictive. Um, so that at the time, like they wanted 
enemy fixing to be more difficult than allied fixing. Uh, although, you know, it's kind of funny, they would re- kind of reverse that position because just like three and a half years after these got printed, we would see the enemy pain lands in Apocalypse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so clearly they they realize, oh, you know what? They don't actually have to suck this hard. But it's it's really a shame because I, I kind of wish they'd figured it out at the time because like the art on these is actually really yes, sweet. A lot so of these good. look great. Um, you know, some of my old favorites, Scott Kirshner, Rebecca Gway, Mm-hmm. Um, Andrew Robinson did an amazing job on the the red white one, um, so it's kind of a shame that like these really cool arts are going to be relegated to bad cards that no one will play because you get better fixing, you know, at common in every standard set these days. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel the same way. I remember like opening or not opening, but like seeing that opening a junk rare box or whatever, and seeing a Caldera Lake and being like, this is so cool, like just the line art was really cool um la williams did like a few cards in the set another one i'm going to talk about later uh, and then came back to do um some more cards like in later sets but uh same feeling i, I wish sometimes that like they had done a better job of these and and looking back to definitely not a lot of enemy fixing like the i think the only set that had stuff before that was good fixing other than like i said the duels was the very bad filter lands from homelands mm-hmm. um where it's like make a colorless pay one to make a red pay two to make a black pay two to make a green where you're like wow this hurts really bad or the don't untap next turn lands to like make a black or a green but it doesn't untap <laughs> next turn um so yeah there's slim pickings back then but yeah things progressed pretty quickly i think they realized pretty quickly that like being able to cast your cards was like not a downside <laughs> to, yeah to med- they're like if you can cast your cards that's a good thing actually and having multiple archetypes in different color combinations is good for the game. <laughs> mm-hmm. Who would have thought? But um, I think at this point, so there are legendary creatures in the set, some of which uh, you might know very well. Um, do you want to get into what the commanders from Tempest are? Sure. Uh, so the first one we're going to be talking about is Selenia Dark Angel. Uh, she is three white black for a 3-3 legendary creature angel with flying you can pay two life to return Selenia to its owner's hand. Uh, so currently, she has 371 decks built for her on EDH rec. Um, and although I, I don't think this was the intent at the time, um, you know, of course, they weren't designing for Commander back then. But these days, it is kind of interesting as a Commander. It's one of the few, um, one of the few Commanders that kind of let you pay unrestricted amounts of life. And so, and of course, she's in a good color identity for like some life total manipulation. There's a fair number of black cards that allow you to switch life totals. Um, there's some white cards that can play around with this pretty well. Um, like Reverse the Sands allows you to redistribute life totals. There's Axis of Morality also lets you switch life totals. So, a lot of there's a fair bit of play for this effect. Um, this the fact that it wasn't really like designed to 
really, you know, helm a commander deck or anything. Um, but interesting. And, and of course, like, I am glad that there is a lot more focus on legendary creatures in the Weatherlight saga and especially in Tempest than in previous sets. Um, part of the reason we skipped directly from Mirage to Tempest is because there were zero legendary creatures in Visions and only three in Weatherlight. So uh, <laughs> glad that, like, you know, the, the focus of the Weatherlight saga being more about characters a lot of them make more legendary creatures and there are some cool designs from back then. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think as we go through these legendary creatures, people kind of see like they weren't, they weren't thinking about legends the same way like <laughs> at all. Selenia is a pretty good example of like how they felt about, legendary cards they're like what if we just made a cool card and it was a character and you're like that's cool <laughs> that's mm-hmm. that's that's sick dude um so i guess can i get into the next legend and people can kind of see what i'm talking about sure so uh this is a character this is uh or er, Aladdin. El- I've, I've always said eladomri eladomri yeah. see i said i said it wrong for years and then uh it's ruined forever. So Eladomri, that's what I'm going to go with because it sounds pretty and elvish. Um, but Eladomri, Lord of Leaves, this was the actual card for the guy. Um, you might know Eladomri's Call, which tutors for a creature. Um, I think sees a lot more play than he does. Um, but he is a 2-2 elf warrior for two mana, green, green. So a very, a very green elf. It says other elves you control have Forest Walk and other elves have Shroud. So in Elf Lord, um, originally at the time he was a summon legend, so he himself wasn't an elf. So the text box actually just read all elves gain forest walk, all elves can't be targets of spells or abilities. Um, not like a, a bad effect, like giving your elf shroud is like not bad, but in the years after they printed a lot of elves that like want to target your other elves and give your elves buffs and stuff like that. Uh, so I think that alone has led people away from it. Forest walks, not a very good evasion ability. I guess it kind of is in commander. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of green in commander. So um, with Yavimaya these days, that's true. You got Yavimaya these days. So, um, you can kind of see like definitely like a cool card, but, Compared to what we get nowadays with tribal rewards, this is um, a very simple time, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't really juicing these legends like they do anymore. Um, and I think for that reason, he does not have that many commander decks. I think he has a 207 was the last count on EDA Trek. Um, and you know what? I bet those people really love him and have a great time with those decks. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with those decks at all. It's just there's so many options when it comes to elves at this point that uh, like an embarrassment of riches. <laughs> like, why would you play uh, Eladomri when you could play one of the like 12 other <laughs> options that are kind of juiced to all hell? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it is also could to some extent be a price issue. It is not a bad card like giving your elves, you know, immunity to spot removal is pretty good but these days he he does go for around 70 bucks so oh, yeah there uh, you go 
that also might limit his adoption somewhat. Yeah, not the best. <laughs> yeah, like Azuri, you can get in Azuri for like five bucks, and I I think that that is perhaps the path of least resistance for people who want to build an elf deck. Yeah. Um. So this next guy, do you care if I read this off? Because I wanted to make this guy for years, and then I never do because he like every time I rough draft it, it ends up being too mean. Um. This is Vadi Ildal. Um, so Vadi Ildal is a two-color commander. This is a 3-3 three, three human warrior for four mana, two black-green. Uh, and he has a really interesting activated ability. It says tap until end of turn. Target creature has base power one or base toughness one. So you can either change a creature's power to one, you know, and like limit that, that hit that's coming your way or uh, take their base toughness to one and... Yeah, just kill it all together, you know. <laughs> so, uh, really cool. Um, you can do a lot of crazy things, mainly kill all of the creatures all the time. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of different ways to do it. One of them was in this set. Um, uh, oh, no, actually, that's the damage one. So, sorry, uh, I'm uh, lying to you. You didn't get a way to absolutely kill things until Night of Souls Betrayal. Um, and just general minus one, minus one effects. Uh, which did come a lot later, but I, I used to see Vadi a lot more when uh, I had started playing Commander. So, again, like 10 years ago or something like that, a little over that at this point. And uh, the decks were I always could, pretty cool. Yeah, they they were they are pretty neat. There is some cool tech. Like, if you throw a Thornbite Staff on him, then it, you, it's pretty easy to turn him into a machine gun. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I think that these days there's just so many options for black green commanders uh that he's fallen a little bit by the wayside mm-hmm. and he's a commander that i i tend to stay away from for uh the main reason of like people usually like they might complain or groan or something about it but if you're you're playing a commander that builds yourself up people are more likely to want to do that and to to be excited to do that um or like play with you where when you're playing a commander that like breaks everyone down that's where a lot more bad feelings come from i've found in my play groups and experiences so vadi being a commander where like the primary goal is just to make sure no one has creatures ever <laughs> not as welcome at a lot of tables as say like uh a grismold where like you're playing a lot of the same cards but really the whole point is to have this big stupid donk um and then people can interact with the big stupid donk uh mm-hmm. and the fact that your tokens kind of get hosed is kind of just part of the process you know as opposed to like the goal um so yeah a lot of options black green has a lot of options for commanders and this is one that will always be near and dear to my heart but um i think at the time of recording this has 163 decks on edh rec so not the most popular guy yeah yeah uh, i think we can move on to the next one it's mm-hmm. actually a pretty interesting one um stark of wrath is one red red for a 2-2 legendary creature human rogue he has tap destroy target artifact or creature that permanence controller gains control of stark of wrath and this effect lasts indefinitely uh so this is a a pretty neat one um it's kind of like playing in the 
uh, Diao Chen space where mm-hmm. you need to find a willing ally or, or like you need to be a little bit political in how you use this card. There are some fun things you can do with it. Like, you know, if you give him away and then use a threaten effect, you can like get him right back and then shoot something else. Um, if you have untap effects like a, a thousand year elixir or something, you can activate him and then uh, before the ability resolves and he goes away, you can untap him, activate him again. Um, you can also and also like if you have kind of sack fodder at that point, just some like crappy token or something, you can stack it so that you get to blow something up, but then like blow up your own treasure token or whatever and get your Stark right back. So there's there's some neat tech with him. Um, he is also just like you can also just like play him as intended and just have this kind of like staxy effect on the board where the best artifact or creature on anyone's board is going to get blown up every single turn provided you have opponents that are willing to sort of cooperate with that game plan um but yeah pretty pretty neat card currently in only 122 or currently only leading 122 decks on eda track so uh has not seen a whole lot of attention lately no, this is something I saw people talk about a lot more, and I would see people play simply for the political aspect of it. The like, hey, uh, I don't like this, but what do you say? Like, we both don't like that, so I'm gonna I'm gonna blow up your thing. Sorry about it, but then you get to blow up whatever you want. Um, that was something that I saw pretty often, um, and it worked to varying effects depending on how uh, vindictive the person. <laughs> Uh, we were playing with was so yeah i i like stark i think this is a cool card and it's a, the kind of card that like we're kind of seeing more of now where uh they're cards that give your opponents a little bit of agency so these days when we get like a five mana card in a commander deck that they want to be political it does something kind of similar to like stark where it gives your opponents options um so it's funny in some ways we're like coming back to this kind of design. Mm-hmm. Um, the next one is really funny. So the, the big story with the next card, this is Orem Samite healer. Um, Orem is a three mana, one, three human cleric for one white, white, and they have tap prevent the next three damage that would be dealt to target creature or player this turn. Um, so the first thing is this effect and limited is, uh, a much bigger deal than it is yeah. in commander or anywhere else. Seems painful to play against. Yeah, you basically like can never predict how your combat's going to go. If you're the aggressor, uh you're pretty much screwed. If you're on defense, like their guy gets out scot free all the time. Um very very strong for limited. They don't really print cards like this anymore. Um not a very interesting commander <laughs> like those kind of micro transactions that uh kind of define limited and limited formats are not anywhere near as big a deal in commander um and being that that's the case orm is not a very popular commander uh only 18 decks at the time of recording on eda track um there's just not a lot of tech other than like untap effects you know and just like raining it sideways that really interact with this it's something they could do. Uh, we've said on the show before, like this is space design space that like white has. Like if you prevent damage, blank. But they they haven't really exercised that or like tested that out. 
um, probably because it's not a super fun limited <laughs> mechanic. Um, but the exciting thing, or the, the exciting thing, the, the cool thing about Orem is that uh, Orem is the second creature named after Morrow. Um, so what happened was uh, they needed a character, they needed a name for this character, and Morrow, I think Morrow made up Orem. I'm going to... Um, no, I think I actually think it was somebody else on the team that just like did Morrow backwards initially. Yeah. And then, and then because like it they wanted it to be clearer how to pronounce it. They changed the A to an I. So it's not, you know, not a uh, perfect reversal of Morrow's nickname. Yeah, um, but technically is named after Morrow, which is yeah. um, pretty funny. Um, Orem was one of the Weatherlight crew for a while um, and just kind of did stuff for the story. So um, it's it's a name that you see a while. Orem's chant is something that you see uh, still played in some decks and and things like that. So um, it's uh, I don't know. I, I wouldn't say a fan favorite, but <laughs> definitely old timers recognize this name and um, kind of well, like it, the next. Uh, well, I was just gonna say it's possible. You know, it's possible we will get a uh, Orem will get revisited at some point in the future. They have been doing like much better versions of pretty much all of the other weatherlight crew i think there's only yeah. i think there's only a couple at this point that are uh in, still in need of reskins um so maybe perhaps or in one day we'll we'll get a a card designed to like modern power levels and and with the intent of it being a commander but yeah a little disappointing and i, I think you're right we can move on to the next one uh this is commander greven ilvek uh, Greven is three black, black, black for a seven, five legendary creature, human warrior with fear. When commander Greven Ilbeck enters the battlefield, sacrifice a creature. Um, so kind of just a big beater with a downside. Uh, perhaps this was more relevant earlier in the format where like, you know, you could just run him as a Voltron commander and kill in three swings. Mm-hmm. But these days, not so much, and he's certainly become eclipsed by his his newer version, which is actually pretty cool and, and good. Um, this version of Greven only has eight decks to his name on EDH Rec, so not not the most uh, inspiring commander. But I think uh, we can perhaps move on to our next section, which is Commander Staples printed for the first time in Tempest, and this oh, is yeah, going to be. Easy. A very long section because Tempest has uh, proven to be extremely influential on Commander. You want to read off this first card that we have here? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. So this first one is actually a land, uh, which kind of makes sense. We're going to go in uh, order of number of decks run in. So this first one is run in a whopping 165,000 decks on EDH Rec. Uh, and it's Ancient Tomb. So this is a land. Uh, it has tap, add two colorless. Ancient Tomb deals two damage to you. So the ability to like basically ramp out a turn faster, any threat, any commander for the low, low cost of I take two, uh, turns out it's pretty good, <laughs> especially when you got 40 life. So Ancient Tomb has always and will always be a commander staple, I'm assuming, unless they do 
ancienter tomb, which is like make three, take three or something <laughs> like that. Um, it's just a very, very good land. Yes. Uh, fantastic card format staple mm-hmm. uh, shame that it hasn't printed been printed like as many times as is needed to really address the demand. Yep. Oh yeah. Yeah. Sad. But let's move on to the next card. This is Lotus Petal. It is zero mana artifact. Tap, sacrifice, Lotus Petal, add one mana of any color. Uh, and this is in 90,000 decks on EDH rec. So the one shot ritual that can go in any deck. For It's an artifact which has relevance in a lot of places. Um, and just a, a powerful, versatile card. Probably, I think, sees a bit more play on the CEDH end of the spectrum. Um, but still, you know, I've put this in, say, like Joy Redex before and, and been very happy about it. Mm-hmm. I pretty much same boat there. Uh, there are very specific decks I've run over the years that really have wanted this. Um, and I would play it. Um, I don't know. It's funny the decks that I've played that I've been like, I think I want to run Lotus Petal here. <laughs> a mana at the cost of a card, sometimes that's a deal that you want to make. So um, definitely an, uh, it's strong. Uh, it's stronger in 60 card than I think it is in Commander unless you are specifically comboing with it. Um, but yeah, definitely a staple. It's definitely just an effect that doesn't really exist or exist in the in a accessible way for a lot of people. So Lotus Petal, um, I think we're just going to see forever. All always, <laughs> it's just always going to kind of be around. Um, this next card is one that I know a lot of people have seen a lot of over the years. This is reanimate. So reanimate is a black sorcery. It costs a single black mana. And it says, put target creature card from a graveyard onto the battlefield. Under your control, you lose life equal to its mana value. And it is in 87,000 decks on EDH rec. Um, This is absolutely a staple. This has been played since the format existed. Um, The amount of times I've stolen something from someone's graveyard, like, oh, you got an it that betrays in there? Um, Or just like... uh, it was pretty common for me back in the day to uh, Woodfall Primus with a reanimate and just, okay, yeah, I lost seven life, but I have blown up now two permanents or something like that. Like, it's pretty, pretty good, pretty potent. It's one mana. <laughs> it's <laughs> pretty nuts. Um, and again, it's like one of those things where unless we get like an ancient or tomb, we're not going to get a reanimate or reanimate, you know? Yeah, they don't make them like this anymore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they they learned their lesson for sure on this one. Um, but do you want to get into the next card? Sure. Uh, this next card is Harrow. Uh, it is two and a green for an instant as initial cost to cast it. Sacrifice a land. Search your library for up to two basic land cards. Put them on the battlefield, then shuffle your library. Uh, this is an 83,000 decks on EDH rec. It's fantastic for enabling landfall. Um, and also like in terms just as a ramp spell the fact that it has a net cost of a single mana kind of puts it on the same level i mean not quite the same level but pretty close to things like um, nature's lore or three visits 
just in terms of you put in one mana uh, or, or like you essentially put in one mana to ramp yourself a turn ahead. Not a lot of cards can, can promise that level of efficiency. Um, so really fantastic card. Also, the fact that it's an instant just works so well uh, with you know so many strategies. It works great with spot removal and counter spells. Like you have the option to ramp yourself at any time. Um, but you can leave mana up for other things. Uh, uh, just a, a very, very good card. I'm, I'm glad it was introduced in the set. Ramp at instant speed just doesn't really... It's not a thing they usually do. It's like discarded instant speed for whatever reason. They're like, no, you don't. You're fine. You're good. Just just go along your way. But Harrow um, ended up being... Just like the perfect combination of like it's ramp, it's two lands entering, it's a land dying, it it hits so many marks and can be played in so many strategies that uh yeah, just really excited that it exists and that they keep printing it and it, it's easy to pick up if you want one and it, it's basically a workhorse. Um do you yeah, I'll read off this next one. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this next one is one uh that has has uh, stifled the aggro deck of many a player over the years. This is propaganda. Uh, it's a three mana blue enchantment, two and a blue. It says creatures can't attack you unless their controller pays two generic for each creature they control that's attacking you. Um, so notably, they can attack your planeswalkers. Um, don't gotta pay to kill them. Uh, but you, if they want to damage your life total, that's a different story. So um, this effect, uh, I've really gone up and down over this over the years i hated it uh well no actually i guess i've gone up on it recently and not because of like pillow fording but because like playing this along with removal actually goes a really long way it's a deterrent i've noticed a lot of the time uh but completely relying on it as the only means of not taking damage from your opponents is just a recipe for disaster so i've come around to it as like a card in a deck even though i still don't like pillow fort in particular but i think this is one of the stereotypical pillow fort cards and you can tell that because it has seventy four thousand decks on edh rec it's in mm-hmm. a lot of blue decks yeah i mean it is good if you know for a fact like your meta does not run lots of enchantment removal um mm-hmm. Like, you know, I was recently playing a deck uh, where I was running out of line. And so I got to send a lot of guys uh, at my other opponents, like the the ones that came, to, came into play tapped and attacking did get through the propaganda. But for the most part, I just wasn't able to send my army at the propaganda player. And, and so I like killed most of my opponents before him. And then I drew a Skyclave apparition and got rid of the propaganda and then I just killed him because, you know, it was he was tapped out at that point and propaganda was no longer able to protect him. So he just died. Um, and that's 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 the typical propaganda game plan right yeah, there. Yeah, absolutely. You're kind of just like, don't blow it up, please. And yeah. then uh, if it does, you die. And if it doesn't, you lived another turn. And that's uh, <laughs> kind of how it goes. So I, I have really enjoyed this. Um, like I said, the last I've I put it in a few decks recently as not like 
the way I don't take damage, but as like a deterrent. Uh, because there's a lot of turns where someone looks around and goes, all right, who's open? Oh, I got to pay two to attack you. I don't have to pay two to attack them. And then they just hit that person instead. Um, so I've kind of seen that like playing this in conjunction with like other board wipes or removal or. Oh, just yeah, kinda, this, you know, I, I, I agree. This plus board wipes is good, but it is no substitute for board wipes. Absolutely. So that that's really where I would caution people now as someone who is kind of reevaluated their life and card choices over the last like four or five years um, and kind of seen the power that this can have on the human psyche <laughs> uh, in a game of commander. Um, but do you want to get into this next card? This next one's also kind of a doozy. Yeah, honestly, I'm, I'm surprised it's not in more decks. Up. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, so this is reflecting pool. It's a land. It taps to add one mana of any type that a land you control could produce. Um, so it's just good fixing it doubles up on it doesn't really like you know if you're in a five color deck it doesn't get you your colors you don't already have but it is just you useful for helping you pay for like you know your your triple red or something or your quad green or whatever um so it's it's useful fixing a little better in in decks with uh more narrow or, or with fewer colors um, but it's it's in fifty eight thousand decks on EDH rec, and it is a, a very solid card introduced to the game in Tempest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I God, there's so many decks I have that run Reflecting Pool. I remember the first time uh, I I got a Reflecting Pool. A friend of mine gave it to me when I was in middle school, and um, I was like, "Man, what deck am I going to put this in? I don't really have that many dual lands because I, I didn't. I was a broke middle school player who would use their like lunch money or birthday money to pick up packs of cards or decks like pre pre-constructed decks and stuff like that so didn't have a wide swath of cards available to me uh and then i remember i went to a wizards of the coast store when those mm. still existed and i asked a judge i handed him one of these odyssey block had uh, a set of lands or a cycle of lands that like tapped i think they entered tapped they tapped for a green or you could sacrifice them to make a, a mana of any color um, like tap sack, make a man of any color. Uh, and I asked the judge, I'm like, hey, if I have this and this, and I held up reflecting pool, does the reflecting pool make a man of any color? And they were like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Um, and that was the first deck I used reflecting pool in was like this like three color deck where I didn't really have any dual lands. I just had like some reflecting pools and a bunch of those Tempest or uh, Odyssey lands that like could sack to make colors and the reflecting pools did the rest of the work for me. <laughs> um, so very silly, um, just a good land. And uh, man, this next card, do you, do you want to get into this next card? This is probably one of the best versions of this effect that is in commander. I, I almost want to pair these next two together because they're so close, both in terms of their rates of adoption and how they are typically used. Yes, and- absolutely. They're, they're extremely similar cards, so uh, let's just do them together. Yeah. Uh, so the first is Altar of Dementia. It's a two-mana artifact. You can sacrifice a creature. Target player puts a number of cards equal to the sacrificed creature's power uh, from the top of their library into their graveyard. And then Goblin Bombardment is one in a red for an enchantment. Sack a creature. Goblin Bombardment deals one damage to any target. Altar of Dementia is in 51,000 decks on EDH rec. Goblin Bombardment is in 45,000 decks on EDH rec. Uh, well, 
what do you use these cards for? Mm, yes, well, uh, if I had something I could sacrifice perhaps many times, uh, I could use these to, uh, in effect, win the game for mm. me and my, my strategy. Uh, and uh, I think one of the cool things about both of these cards is that they're not just I win the game buttons. They're also like, oh, you're attacking me? Well, I sack these saprolings and kill these creatures with goblin bombardment or like altar of dementia while you're getting to the point where you can win with it you can be like mm, well okay block sack this guy mill myself six like something like that you know mm-hmm. so not only are these win conditions in their respective decks that can make either a lot of tokens or uh recur a creature a bunch of times they also kind of keep you alive and help push your your uh, game plan forward which is um, a lot. That's not something many cards can can say for themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely um, fantastic cards. Uh, lots of lots of combo potential for these. Um, and I I I have put them in so many decks at this point. Uh, I just love sack outlet value. Mm-hmm. Um, there and there is of course like alter dementia is perhaps a tiny bit more versatile well no, no they both have good utility like goblin bombardment is board control if you want it in addition to being a win condition mm-hmm. altar of dementia you can target yourself in which you know in graveyard heavy decks that's pretty relevant um or if you like maybe you just want to go full i mill out my entire library and then win with like authorical um so l- l- there's there's very fun things you can do with these cards and they're also just great at turning loops into a way to win the game. So uh, glad they got introduced. I, I This is the golden age of engines. Uh, it's so easy to convert resources in from like one thing to another in, in Tempest and mm-hmm. versus Saga blocks. So yeah, this is before uh, they really had a, a top-notch development team, I would say. <laughs> Yeah, but also I think it started like it's way back here that we can see the roots that are finally sprouting now of like red being the color of conversion uh, of red being like, I'm going to take this resource and make it this other thing. Um, Those were like nailed down pretty early in the game, like pretty soon after we got Urza's block, which had like Goblin Welder and a bunch of other cards that like flip things from your library and whatnot and they kind of had that idea for red even back here (laughs) so um it's cool to see like certain through lines throughout magic that just stayed really consistent um and yeah just very happy about it um the next card is a card that uh i'm gonna talk about again so i'm just gonna i'll I'll let you read it off actually because i'll say some things about it later (laughs) Uh, sure, yeah. This next card is Living Death. It is three black black for a sorcery. Each player exiles all creature cards from their graveyard, then sacrifices all creatures they control, then puts all cards exiled this way onto the battlefield. Uh, and it's in 39,000 decks on EDA Trek. Uh, this is a, a really cool one. Um, I just loved, back in the day, doing the classic Living Death plus Eternal Witness type mm-hmm. of loops. Um where you can just like constantly refresh your creatures 
uh, whenever they just let him die willy nilly and then get him back with living death and then get the living death back with eternal witness. Uh, good times loved that style of gameplay, but uh, what were you going to say about living death? Uh, yeah, I'll say more later. Uh, this is a, a card that means a lot to me. Uh, nudge, nudge, wink, wink mm-hmm. um, for another section, but uh, it's amazing to me that they really never uh, much like reanimate much like a lot of these other cards we're talking about. They just never did a better version of this. <laughs> like, this is the ultimate. It's changed its wording a few times before we landed on what we're at now, but it's always worked the same, basically. And again, it's like Lissid's. It, it kind of just does what it says. And when you see it happen, you're like, oh, okay, that's obvious. But um, the order of operations can be confusing at times. Um, but yeah, love this card. Uh, there's nothing quite like it. And uh, yeah, I'll say a little bit more in a little bit. but. The next card on the list, uh, and we're we're getting we're maybe halfway done with this list, so this is going to be, like I said, the longest section, uh, is Scroll Rack. So Scroll Rack, uh, crazy card, uh, artifact, two mana, uh, has one tap, exile any number of cards from your hand face down, put that many cards from the top of your library into your hand, then look at your exiled cards and put them on top of your library in any order. So. There are very few cards that give you the like visceral gameplay experience of like what they're trying to do and the flavor they're trying to convey. Um, and there are very few cards that do that as well as Scroll Rack does, mm-hmm. where you just feel like an accountant, like, mm, yes, mm, okay, I'll put these here. Okay, I drew these cards, nice. Oh, what do I put back now? Okay, let's put this second from the top because if I reveal that with my Oracle of Moldai, you're like, okay. Jeez, like it, it's it's great. It's an incredibly powerful card, um, and it is in sixty. Oh, sorry, it is in thirty six thousand decks on EDA Trek. And honestly, I think it would be in more if it hasn't been so gosh darn expensive for forever, <laughs> for a very long time now. Yeah, there is a lot of as as you sort of alluded to. There's a lot of fun things you you can do with this card. Uh, works great with miracles. Um, works great with all these recent commanders that allow you to like cast the top card of your library if it has a certain characteristic um so there's just a lot of fun to be had with this card there is of course like the old school rack land tax combo that's great too um yeah just uh very and, and of course like you know if you've got a uh a deck that's heavy on fetch lands heavy on tutors shuffle effects um you can sculpt your hand amazingly and then never have to redraw the bad cards again so Mm -hmm. just very very versatile tool yeah i've used this in um a lot of green decks where uh i can like you said it's basically just like drawing anywhere from like one to seven (laughs) new cards because you go put these cards on top uh rampant growth pass and all of a sudden you have a handful of gas and everything that wasn't working is gone. Um, very, very strong, very cool, a lot of play to it. And you can just set up some really fun, crazy combos. And man, this next card's also a banger. Do you want to get into this next one? Yes. Uh, so this card is Wasteland. It's a land. It taps to add colorless mana and you can tap and sacrifice it to destroy target non-basic land 
currently in twenty thousand sorry twenty seven thousand decks on EDH rec, and uh, it's very good. It's really only it's <laughs> yeah. It, I think its adoption definitely does not reflect the power level of the card. It, mm-hmm. I, more so, it just reflects the social norms of the format and the price tag because really this card is amazing there are so many powerful non-basic lands in the format um and you're if you're trading one of your land drops for a cabal coffers or a guy's cradle then you are coming out way ahead in that exchange yeah absolutely um this is a card that has wrecked many a player uh when they sit down against like an azusa deck um it's it's funny that they were like we're gonna make a more fair strip mine uh and it was still pretty busted (laughs) it's still pretty good so um yeah wasteland in always will be a staple there's just never gonna be anything uh like it other than like i said strip mine which is just absolutely ridiculous anyway um so can I get into this next? Uh, I'm going to group them all together. Is that okay with you? Yeah, of course. So, um, and you'll see why, listener, right now. This is the Medallion Cycle. So the Medallion Cycle hovers between uh, 25,000 copies in lists and 14,000 copies in lists. Um, and uh, they all are good i think the most played one is the blue one um the least played one i'm pretty sure is the green one but i i have to double check on yes sorry those are in order yeah okay cool um oh so then it's the red one is the most played one correct um yes so um which makes sense especially nowadays with like kind of the spell slingery stormy nature of red um Mm -hmm which they've been really playing up the last few years. Um, and it's funny because I actually have played these in the opposite order, uh, almost exactly where I've used the green one more <laughs> often than I've used hmm. the red one, um, which is just kind of is what it is, I guess. Just a, I don't know, weird thing about me. But yeah, they just are very good. They let you double, triple, quadruple spell on a turn very easily. Um, they're very, very good in monocolor decks. Um, they're fine in decks where like it's black red, but there's only like seven red cards or something like that. <laughs> um, I don't know. There's not too much I can say about these other than they are they're kind of like just a twist on a mana rock that was a little better than I think everyone expected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, these are great cards, uh, especially if you're planning on casting many spells. And I don't have much to add, so I'm gonna move on to the next card. Yeah. Uh, so this next card is Time Warp. It is three Boom. blue blue for a sorcery. Target player text takes an extra turn after this one. Uh, so I think this was this was really like the first attempt. Uh, actually, well, hold on. I might have to look at like the portal release date. <laughs> one of certainly no. This is the first attempt to um like make a fixed time walk, and it's. You know, certainly got a more reasonable mana cost, but this, uh, would, would you say like the addition of extra turn cards to the format has been like a net positive or a net <laughs> negative? <laughs> That's a really uh, great philosophical question that I don't think I'm equipped to answer. I think extra turns are fine. 
they're probably one of the splashiest things that you can do and like uh if you're in like a cdh play group or a play group that's pretty like bare bones like everything on the table they are like absolutely like fine you know everyone just kind of goes oh okay do your thing but i think for casual play they are god awful because like if you were sitting down and you're a casual player what do you want to do you want to do your thing so sitting down across from someone who takes one to multiple extra turns when you had to wait patiently like a a good little lad and (laughs) wait for your turn like everyone else it's it feels pretty bad but i don't think the game is worse for having extra turn spells i think like i said it's like splashy and crazy and it's like one of the biggest like things you can do but um they're basically one of the only cards that just doesn't have a downside like the worst case scenario on time warp is that like it replaced itself and your mana is untapped you know like most cards have some penalty for running if there's no uh if you're not able to cast it or it's not like super effective at what you're trying to do with it like a, a giant growth uh worst case scenario like just sits in your hand while you don't have a creature there or something like that and, and a lot of cards are like that but time warp effects are never bad period mm-hmm. <laughs> like and there's there's just nothing quite like it so i think from a casual focus yeah it's probably not good i try to stay away from most time warp effects unless it's either like my win condition and i can demonstrate to people like hey i'm gonna do this forever do you want to keep playing or like it's a one of because it's on theme for whatever reason like a karn's temporal sundering in my neombi list you know something Mm -hmm. like that um but yeah how do you feel about time warps uh i i think you've got a this is something like to talk about with your playgroup because you know already in commander you're giving up a, a lot of play time because it's a multiplayer format you're you know in a four-man game four-person game you're only really going to get 25 percent of the play time at uh on average so for one person to be taken a lot more than that could be seen as antisocial there are some of my decks that run a bunch of time warps that i don't uh certainly don't break out every game night um yeah so uh i i'd say check with your check with your play group but don't don't run it unthinkingly it's, it's something yeah. that deserves consideration yeah check with your doctor to see if time warp is right for you you know <laughs> that's right <laughs> um the next one is uh classic so this is uh this is winds of wrath it's a white sorcery five mana um and we can we can kind of see the the depth of how different blue and white are between these two five mana sorceries so uh the white five mana sorcery uh destroys all creatures that aren't enchanted they cannot be regenerated so this is in 19,000 decks on EDA trek uh, it does what it says it says what it does if you're putting auras on stuff uh your stuff lives and everyone else's stuff presumably dies so um it's a good card i mean it's in 19,000 decks that put auras on stuff and uh, I think it will be forever in those decks you know <laughs> um, not too much to say on my end yeah I think we can skip on to the next one um, 
This next one is Intuition. It is two and a blue for an instant. Search your library for three cards and reveal them. Target opponent chooses one. Put that card into your hand and the rest into your graveyard. Then shuffle your library. And it has 15,000 decks on EDH rec. Um, and that is, a, I'd say, like honestly, surprisingly high given the, the price tag that Intuition commands these days. Um, Intuition is currently going for a healthy $187. Um, <laughs> so uh, I, I think that's really a testament to its power, to the fact that it crosses our, the threshold we use for format staples, despite being prohibitively expensive for, for many players. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's great. I mean, it's sort of, it, it can be another copy of Buried Alive, kind of. It can uh, set up some pretty sweet combos. Um, there, I mean, it can. Worst case scenario, if you've got like three similar effects, it can just be a tutor at instant speed for three mana. Mm-hmm. Uh, so really, this card does a whole lot, and it is quite a shame that it's on the reserve list. Uh, mm-hmm. But do you have anything you want to say about it? Uh, no, just my favorite intuition is the card in two islands. Um, classic mm. you're like all right what do you give me do you give me the answer we all know we need <laughs> or are you dooming us to our fate and uh that's one of my favorite intuition plays i've ever seen so nice, nice. yeah it's fun it's a cool card um it makes people it makes people question the ban list a little bit but that's not this episode <laughs> that i'm mm. gonna talk about um the next card is classic this is this is the namesake card for an entire class of cards that we all talk about all the time this is overrun um it is a five mana green sorcery two green 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 they really wanted you to be green to play this card and it does the most green thing you could possibly think of it says creatures you control get plus three plus three and gain trample until end of turn I didn't need to tell you that because everyone who's played Magic for any amount of time <laughs> knows what Overrun does. Um, it is in 14,000 decks on EDHREC. Even still, even after all of these years, people go, I'd rather have Overrun <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> compared to any of the other myriad of options that have been printed, given to us. You know, It's not like they're all prohibitively expensive. Some of them might be like the uh, um, Triumph of the Hordes and whatnot. But there are so many overrun effects. And like I said, this is the namesake card for that that style of play. And uh, it's interesting to think that there's a time in Magic before this card existed, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, like Tempest was the genesis of the namesake of this whole class of cards that we get. Basically a new one or three every year. Yeah, it is... Uh fascinating to see like how much of like modern commander this card is influenced like you do really have to respect the green player at the table because they can pull out something like this at any time um no other color is really nearly as good as translating a board full of creatures to a win so easily um mm-hmm. so yeah definitely like a, a foundational card that would go on to influence green design for a very long time yeah Uh, fascinating and i think with that we can move on to the last commander staple in tempest that we're going to be talking about today Mm -hmm. 
Uh, so this is Capsize. It is one blue-blue for an instant with buyback three. Uh, return target permanent to its owner's hand. And this is currently in 12,000 decks on EDH rec. So what are your thoughts on Capsize? How how do you think this sees play in the format? Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I mean, uh, as a utility card, six to bounce a permanent is not a good rate, not very good. A lot of the time when you see buyback, it's because, or when you see capsize, it's because you are casting it many, 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 many times. Mm-hmm. Um, and you are capsizing a board. It's usually like the end piece for like some kind of infinite mana or large mana like combo or, or ritual or something like that. Um, the first time I saw capsize, I actually didn't know what the card did. I thought it literally um, just bounced my entire board. Um, oh, <laughs> because I was playing uh, I, again, I was like young, I was like 11 years old and I was playing, uh, it was like one of my first sanctioned events I ever played in. And I just had this like janky red deck that I'd put together and, uh, I'm at a wizard store and this guy goes, uh, I can't, I can't even remember what he did, but he just went like, all right, capsize buyback, uh, this many times bounce all your permanents. And I was like, can I see that? And he's like, oh, no, it's Capsize. And I'm 11. I'm just this little kid. And this is like this teenager. Oh, so I, I was like, wow. I was like, what, what can I see the car? And he's scummed. Yeah, I got scummed. And uh, I, so I and that was the first and only time I'd seen by uh, Capsize as a card was not seeing it was just being like, OK, I guess my board is is bounced. Um, and, you know, I didn't play in tournaments for a long time. After that. <laughs> It wasn't until I was um, much older, like a teenager myself, uh, that that I tried to go back. Uh, wizard stores had been all but phased out at that point, but uh, it wasn't until like a friend of mine was like, "Capsize your thing," and I was like, "Just one, <laughs> like like just one permanent? What?" And he's like, "Yeah, you know capsize," and I was like, "I thought I did." Um, so that's my capsize story. Um, but yeah, this is a. Uh, win condition quote quote for a lot of decks um kind of the end game for a lot of big mana and or infinite mana and uh it's just i think still a good card you know all these years later still does what it says uh all right well that is the last staple card we're going to be talking about today um let's move on to some pet cards so i'm I'm gonna uh lay this down uh right at the front of this segment um most of my pet cards are just things that i think either should be staples or just like highly influential cards that didn't sort of cross our threshold we usually use of ten thousand decks to determine format staples so uh first one i'm going to talk about is humility humility is two white white for an enchantment all creatures lose all abilities and have base power and toughness one one um basically this card uh i i want to say this like forced the sixth edition like rules cleanup or or was like (laughs) had had to have been like some component some large component of it because of like like this just creates so many questions um like what uh what is it uh like okay how does this interact with like riding the dilu horse or like uh <laughs> or if you have like multiple things that all set power and toughness um how exactly does that work 
So that this like kind of forced the creation of like layers and timestamps. Uh, it's it's like the text is deceptive, deceptively simple, um, because it just opened up a whole can of worms at the moment anything weird starts to happen. Um, and of course, they had to go ahead and like print opalescence in the next block to add an extra layer of confusion. Um, so. <laughs> This, uh, I, I think it's a really notable card in addition to just being like, you know, influential on the game's rules. I mean, it is also just like useful in some scenarios. If you have a deck that like heavily focuses on tokens, being able to play a card that makes it so your crappy one ones are now the exact same size as everyone else's cards that they had to like, you know, commit multiple cards or and a lot of mana to creating uh, just really creates a big imbalance in like resources spent to board presence. Mm -hmm. Uh, So really neat card. I'll I'll let you tell us about your first pet card. Yeah. Um, So I'm going to kind of uh, go in Wubergor with mine. And my first one is spirit mirror. And this is literally a pet card. Um, I, had so many decks when I first started playing. So um first started playing Commander. Uh, Spirit Mirror was just a card that I tried to use a lot in conjunction with some other cards. So Spirit Mirror is a four mana enchantment. It costs two and two white. It says during your upkeep, if there are no reflection tokens in play, you can put a two two white creature token reflection onto the battlefield. And it has zero destroy target reflection. Um so <laughs> what I would do is I would use like a Meboid Changeling or Unnatural Selection. Um, I would put Standardize on a um, uh, Isochron Scepter. Uh, Standardize is blue, blue, instant. Choose a creature type other than Legend or Wall. Um, I guess now it just says Wall. Each creature becomes that type until end of turn. So you could be like Reflection, boom, 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 and like blow up a bunch of creatures that were uh, in your way, you know? Uh, You can make deals with people. It was pretty funny. Um, Definitely not a powerhouse, but it's a really interesting card, honestly. Like, the fact that you get this, like, 2-2 every turn, if you want. You could sack it for whatever. You can jump block with it uh, or just straight up just attack with it because it's attached to this four-mana enchantment. Uh, It's pretty interesting. So, definitely a card that... Uh, I at one point in time played a lot of, and I st- I still don't think it's bad, um, but it definitely is a pet card, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but yeah, what's your next pet card? All right, uh, my next pet card is Earthcraft. Uh, so this is one green for an enchantment. Tap an untapped creature you control. Untap target basic land. Um, so this has a a lot of things going for it. There is of course the combo potential. You know, you could put like a an aura that goes on a land and, and taps to create some sort of creature then get infinite of those creatures and they're all tapped whatever um <laughs> that's honestly like not what is most interesting to me about this card uh, i think it's just fantastic in token decks a lot of your token producers are become like mana neutral or close to it when you have this card on the battlefield like if you you know, spend five for your increasing devotion and then tap your five creatures to untap five basic lands. 
well, you, you know, you just spent zero mana to get a, a significant addition to your board. Uh, so I, I think that's a great use for it. Also, it, it's worth noting that, like, you know, if you're in green, you're on color for some pretty good land auras like Overgrowth or Wild Growth or Utopia Sprawl. So this can add even more mana than it might initially seem. Um, it, I think it's just like a great little engine card for getting a ton of mana out of your, your big board states. It's great if your creatures have Vigilance, if that's relevant. Mm-hmm. Uh, super super neat card i I love earthcraft and i i hate that it is Ooh, last i checked it was like 100 but i know that's not true yeah it's probably probably more probably closer to double that yeah no i i feel the same way i've used earthcraft a lot over the years and it's pretty much always good um whether you're just like trying to use it to tap creatures without having to get into combat or you're using it like you said to like just generate mana or generate a ton of mana like every creature being a mana dork with haste is uh pretty exciting (laughs) there's a lot going on there um so i guess my next uh my next pet card is one that i think people saw a lot more when the format was starting up and i definitely played it a lot more back then but i don't think it's it's bad still um and this is tradewind rider so tradewind rider is a one four flying spirit for four mana three and a blue uh, and it says tap tap two untapped creatures you control return target permanent to its owner's hand so this i mean played fairly it's just basically you get to bounce something every turn uh, played unfairly with like uh, intruder alarms or um, all sorts of things that like untap creatures. Uh, even if you're just untapping it and like something once a turn, if you can make tokens, because the tokens, it it is the only thing that needs to not have summoning sickness. You can tap whatever else you have to bounce things. Um, this was part of like combos. I would tap this and three things to like bounce um, something to my hand to play that something like again eventually i could use this with like a bell ringer or something like that village bell ringer um and uh yeah it's very interesting very versatile um definitely a pet card of mine uh i think it's really funny that it's a spirit and not like an elemental or something else like uh just kind of an interesting choice uh even kind of looks like the way that like magic kind of stereotypically would illustrate like gins mm-hmm. at this time period. So uh, it's interesting that it's been a spirit for its whole existence. I'm going to jump into Alluren. Uh, so this is two green green for an enchantment. Any player can play creature cards with converted mana cost three or less without paying their mana cost and as though they had flash. So this is notable because it works really, really well with creatures that can bounce themselves so things like white mane lion uh a cavern harpy is of course the classic one um uh core skyfisher there are just a ton of cards out there that are able to bounce and well not a ton there, there's a handful of cards out there they're <laughs> able to bounce and replay themselves and in in combining them you get to get infinite cast triggers infinite creatures entering the battlefield leaving the battlefield it's not too difficult 
to generate a win from that position. There, you know, there's a, many cards that will sub in as the third piece of the combo to, to win you the game. So wanted to mention that. Um, and of course, if you just have a lot of cheap creatures, it does you know produce a fair bit of mana. But the, I think the combo applications are a little bit more interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with that. I've played Alurian Index over the years, and the downside of everyone being able to do it just really doesn't doesn't really come up that often. <laughs> yeah, if um, you're building your deck around Alurian, you're going to get more value. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my next pet card is uh, a card I still play with absolutely all the time. Um, it's my favorite playmat I've ever got. It is uh, Coffin Queen. So um, Coffin Queen is a three mana creature. Um, it's a one one zombie wizard for two and a black. Uh, it says you may choose not to untap Coffin Queen during your untap step and has two black tap. Uh, put target creature card from a graveyard onto the battlefield under your control. When Coffin Queen becomes untapped or you lose control of Coffin Queen, exile that creature. When I... When when Jared Golgari Lichlord first came out, I was looking for as many creatures as possible to do as many functions for the deck as possible. Uh, and this was one of the first cards in the deck because I had always, always, always loved this card when I was a kid um, and never played it. I never had a deck for it. Uh, I didn't have access to a lot of cards. And um, I was at a point in my life when I could get a Coffin Queen. They were not expensive at the time. Um, they're still not on the reserve list, but they've just never been reprinted. Um, and that deck has been in Jared the entire time <laughs> I've had that deck together. It's really good. Uh, the fact that it can steal creatures is crazy. Um, having your commander be a sack outlet's really good. Um, it's just a creature way to, uh, have a reanimation spell in your list. And, uh, even though it's a little bit slow, you have to pay six and tap it basically to reanimate something. The fact that you can do it all the time is very strong. Um, if you combine it with like a Seedborn Muse and a Sack Outlet, you can get a lot of value over multiple turns. Uh, it's just a good card. It's fun. Uh, arts ro- the art rules. And that's it. Yeah, played with it a lot. And I think you should too. Um, it, it is more expensive these days. Like I said, it hasn't been reprinted, even though it's not in the reserve list. Um, so it's like sitting around 10 bucks now. But 10 is sadly a fairly reasonable number for Magic cards these days. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm going to jump into my next card. This is Recycle. Uh, So four green green for an enchantment. Skip your draw step. Whenever you play a card, draw a card. Your maximum hand size is two. Um, So this is a heck of an engine. Um, (laughs) Unless you're up against a discard, it's like the the skipping your draw step does look a little bit scary, but you're like, you're not going to have problems with card flow. Anything you do is going to get you more cards from this position. You've been playing lands. Um, and like the, there's a lot of very low-cost ways to get around the maximum hand size being two. You're in green. You can get a Reliquary Tower if you need one. Um, and it's just a really powerful combo engine if you're trying to do something like cast a bunch of creatures or um, even like even trying to storm off or something. It's just a, a really useful effect. I also love the the plane shifted version. 
from mm-hmm. planar chaos they have a version of this that's just for black black instead called uh, null perfusion so pretty pretty cool little engine card uh it is prohibitively expensive but if you ever get to untap with it you can go off pretty hard yeah yeah there's nothing quite like recycle well i guess mm-hmm. there is because null perfusion but um, like this. <laughs> there is one card like recycle <laughs> there's exactly one card um yeah and and uh it's fun it's cool it uh really makes you try to go off the turn you cast it because the the max hand size is two is uh, it's pretty big downside um so if you, you don't land what you're trying to land then it's not not going to work out too well for you um the next card on my list is one that i i've also played forever and always um it's a black card it's living death we talked about it a little bit earlier so the only thing i'm really going to add here other than the fact that i love it so much is um that you shouldn't sleep on the fact that this is kind of a board wipe at the same time uh if the board looks terrible and you look in graveyards and there's like some mana dorks and stuff that have died but you have like some better stuff like that's a board wipe baby like who cares if they got their land or elves back like you you got your graveyard and you've taken care of whatever tokens might exist, uh, whatever scary utility creatures might be there, things with shroud or hexproof, um, indestructible creatures. So Living Death does a lot of things uh, and you should play it. And uh, I will never stop playing this card. <laughs> and with that, I'll pass it back to you. What's another card that you, a pet card, card you really like? All right, uh, this one is Mana Severance. It's one and a blue for a sorcery. Search your library for any number of land cards and exile them and then shuffle. Um, so this is, we, we talk a lot about hit rate uh, when we, we like go over combo decks. So basically any type of deck where you're like casting some sort of thing, like say an artifact in Joyra or a creature in like Chulain, um, where you're you're casting some sort of thing and drawing cards, you want to do everything you can to influence the likelihood that the next card will be the the thing that lets you keep the combo going and, and decrease your chance of fizzling. Um, so mana severance is a pretty good shortcut for for like well drastically increasing your hit rate. So yeah. I put this in like a draw rather like captain deck. Uh, and suddenly my chance of hitting another artifact goes from around 50% to around like 85% um, as soon as you cast this thing. So it's just really, really useful tool in those types of decks. Um, also, if I mean, also like there is a certain point where you have enough mana and you just don't want to draw lands for the rest of the game. And it's kind of useful in that scenario as well. Any and yeah, you do like go down on cards when you cast this, but if you consider like drawing multiple land, like drawing more lands than you have like remaining land drops for the rest of the game uh, is kind of just a waste. So being able to spend one card and prevent that from happening to you may end up like increasing the like the virtual number of cards drawn Uh, anyway maybe i'm overthinking this but i I just think it's a fantastic card and yeah has some good applications yeah i'm i'm not gonna say too much about it but i think like a good way of saying it is like 
you draw a card and the card is anywhere between like a, a zero being like unplayable or not useful to like a 10. And what if you took a, like you spend a card to make sure that every card you draw from now on is at least like a 6.5 or higher. Like you would probably play that card. Uh, and that's kind of what Mana Severance does is it takes out all the zeros and uh, turns them into gas. So uh, it's like an investment in your future. Um <laughs> So yeah, this next I'll, card. I'll say that I, I like it most in combo applications. I'll say that, but go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm going to go really quick because my last card is really quick, but this one is a story. Um, but I played it a lot for some reason. It's Apocalypse. So Apocalypse is a five mana red sorcery, uh, two red, red, red. Uh, exile all permanents, all, uh, sorry, exile all permanents, discard your hand. A pretty brutal <laughs> red board wipe. Um, and the reason it's here is because, and the reason it's a pet card is because for uh, a long time ago, I had a deck that I called the Bomb Shelter, which was Baron Glory, you O-Ring Baron Glory, you cast Apocalypse, you win the game. Um, and that deck won casual 60 card games way more often than it should have. Just people just like did not think because it had a lot of like wall of shards um which i think is the right wall where the cumulative upkeep is like an opponent gains life and like just stuff like that i could give away life with impunity because i didn't care and like people really liked that um and i ended up putting the same the bomb shelter combo in like a lot of decks like whenever i tried to make like a super friend or a, a, a pillow fort list a few times i tried to do that um the bomb shelter was in it so it's just a like a funny like weird card with really great art it's an la williams art um that i've loved and run in a bunch of decks for many 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 years now so i guess in the same way like if we ever get to um future sight baron glory will be on that list of pet cards but um this is definitely absolutely a pet card for me i love this card so much um and what is your what's your last pet card Right, I, I alluded to this one earlier um, when we were talking about buyback. This is Worthy Cause. It's a single white mana for an instant. It has buyback two, and as an additional cost to cast it, sacrifice a creature, gain life equal to the sacrificed creature's toughness. Uh, so I really like this as a sack outlet that you don't have to commit to the board, so it's really difficult to interrupt. Um, and the, I mean... It's a little bit narrow in its applications, but it's like a really important card for Child of Alara decks. Um, just being able to constantly force the death trigger in a way that like your opponents are going to have trouble interacting with and that won't die to your own Child of Alara is really important for that deck. Uh, and there's a couple other decks too that re are reliant on sack outlets, but which... To, to the extent that they are willing to like pay this premium of like paying mana every time you activate it and and getting kind of like a middling reward for the sacrifice um but it's i think it's just a, a very like many other cards mentioned it's just a useful tool there there are certain decks that really really want this and it's going to be uh very useful in those builds mm -hmm. yeah absolutely i i honestly still don't think that in uh uninteractable sack outlet that's just cost three mana to use is a bad thing i think this is still a very bit playable card 
Um, because yeah, you just if they don't have a counter spell, if they can't make you discard it, it's just never going away. <laughs> you <laughs> you always have access to it. It's pretty good. Um so my last pet card, uh if you've been listening to the show a lot, you know, this is like one of my favorite things to do. So reanimation, like pitching my hand and nature's revolt, which is a green enchantment. So it's five mana, uh three green green. Lands are two two creatures. So nature's revolt. Uh I don't know if they I don't think they got a creature type in the update. Yeah, all lands are two two creatures. They're still lands. I love animating lands. There's so many funny things you can do with uh a card like this. Um like I said, if you have like a village bell ringer and can like untap stuff, you can uh, create loops where you're making infinite mana. Um, you kind of, it's like a canned army. It's an army out of nowhere. If you ramp a whole bunch and then you cast like a nature's revolt or a Kamal's will or um, all sorts of various things, all of a sudden you just have a bunch of creatures that no one was really like paying attention to that they didn't realize were there. Um so it's like resource conversion, it's a canned army, it's all that kind of stuff, and uh, I love doing it. Um, so that's kind of it. Those are our pet cards. Uh, I guess with that, if there's a card from Tempest that you want us to talk about, we didn't talk about, you can let us know in our Discord, you can message us on social media. Um, this set, I think it was, uh, as you kind of heard and by the length of the episode, it was a huge deal for commander uh even though it didn't know it at the time <laughs> you know yeah definitely very influential um both in 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 terms of this format that we love so much but also just uh you know how the story is communicated how the the products are 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 released to people how of yeah <laughs> uh how players enter the game um so fantastic set uh really hitting on all cylinders and uh i think we're we're better off for it having been released but with Mm -hmm. that i want to give a brief thank you to our patreon patrons they are gustav addison rick Raphael, kyle laser charlotte the white clays hannah james logan roger evan bryce dylan benjamin jamie matthew kyle brandon kevin jeremy russell dylan micah troy roxanne charles daniel andrew jason paul johan jonathan Christian, Jim, Andrea, Vasilios, Logan, Frugal Brutal, Carl Oscar, Danny B, Mifflin, Jean-Francois, Drew, Recta, and Nick. Thank you all for supporting the show. And if you're not currently a Patreon patron, but would like to become one, please check us out at patreon.com slash commander theory. Thanks for listening. You can reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at commander theory. And on Twitter, I am at fat Bartleby. You can also email us at commandertheory at gmail.com. Our theme song is Lincoln Continental by Nick Cage. You can check him out on SoundCloud. And if you're interested in some other creative products I'm working on, I have a band you can check out. We are a pink punk, pop punk band called The Have Nots, all one word like Cosmonauts. Uh, you can listen to all of our music for free right now. You can just head over to thehavenots.bandcamp.com. That is T-H-E-H-A-V-N-A-U-T-S.bandcamp.com. And check us out. Let me know what you think. 